it's time for a chocolate and coffee break. So grab your cuppa and let's listen together to stories from people of all walks of life that will touch your heart and reveal that opposites are the same. I'm your host, Andrea Putting, and this is Chocolate and Coffee Breaks, where we bring people together in the spirit of love and acceptance. Welcome to Chocolate and Coffee Breaks, and today my guest is Johnson Chong, and he's an award-winning author of Sage Sapien, From Karma to Dharma. He's a shamanic energy medicine practitioner, yoga and meditation teacher who's based in Sydney and hosts workshops and retreats around the world. His work integrates various holistic modalities to help break people break free of their mental, emotional and spiritual roadblocks so they can live more aligned to their inner peace and self-love. He has a special interest in working with people, the LGBT, TQ and marginalized communities. So I'm thrilled to be able to speak to Johnson today because he has a lot of things to talk about that are really relevant to the whole chocolate and coffee breaks concept. So welcome, Johnson. Hey, Andrea. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. And we're here today with some chocolate and coffee. I hope you've got some I have a I have nice my almond fruit. cappuccino, and I don't have the best chocolate. I have a ninety percent lint. It was what was available. I like to eat pana, and I have um, I, I like dark South American chocolate. But this is kind of what my partner eats, and so it was what was available. <laughs> well, I'm sure that you'll enjoy it anyway. What are you I eating? Have- Today, I've got one from Daintree Estates. Now, this is an Australian chocolate, and it's a combination of Pinot Noir Ooh. infused dark milk chocolate. Oh, wow. When I saw this, I couldn't resist it. Besides, it has a purple package. But the thought of chocolate and wine together is something that... Uh, well, this is chocolate and coffee. A lot of my friends say, can we have chocolate and wine? And I go, yeah, okay. That's a that's an evening time podcast. <laughs> that's right. That's the evening one. I should do some. <laughs> that would be fun. We'll do it later after this. <laughs> yes. So I'd love to start off today with a question out of my pack of conversation starters. And the one we've pulled out for today is, what have you created or done that you are most proud of? Hmm. Well, I actually just two days ago, I reached number one on the Amazon bestsellers list for my book that came out last year called Sage Sapien from Karma to Dharma in the LGBTQ section of Wonderful. because they have different categories. So that was pretty cool. I didn't really expect that my book would be recognized in that way and I also won an award for it and so that's that's pretty neat and and I would say maybe up to date that's probably something that I am really happy about yeah congratulations it's wonderful it's thank you thank you yes as a fellow author I I think that's wonderful it's it's a real challenge when you write a book to actually have it out there and read it people reading it and to actually sell enough to win an award and to get that bestseller label is awesome really wonderful 
Thank you. Thanks so much. So I'd love to talk to you about, well, it's some of the things that are in your book from what I understand. I'll have to get your book and have a read of it myself because I'm sure it's going to be a great read. So I'd love to know some about your experiences in in the world of what we talk about in chocolate and coffee, about, about acceptance and belonging in the world and about some of the experiences that you have had because I've heard a little bit of your stories and I think they really will resonate with people. Sure. Yeah. So my story in relationship to acceptance and belonging has always been something that's been curious to me because I never really felt like I belonged when I was a child. First off, I'm Asian American, Chinese American to be specific, and also gay. So I'm a minority of a minority. And I grew up in a very conservative household. My parents are very traditional. They were refugees from land-owning families at a time when, of course, the communists took over. It was, of course, not great for them to stay in China. So they had to leave for fear of their lives. And so I grew up, I was born and raised in New York City to an immigrant family that didn't necessarily, I mean, they wouldn't have been in the States if it, it weren't for, for the communists winning. Yeah. My, my mother's father was actually a translator for the Nationalist Party, which lost and they had to flee and there was a lot of death and violence. And so my parents experienced a lot of emotional trauma, a lot of violence that they witnessed. And so a lot of that passed down into the way they were parenting me. And as a kid, it was very confusing for me because I was brought up in a very ethnically diverse neighborhood in Brooklyn, in New York City, where there were so many different languages and dialects and people around me, but we grew up speaking Cantonese at home. And so when I first went to preschool, what was really curious to me was that everyone was speaking English. So there I was confused because <laughs> yeah. uh, I wasn't speaking that at home. So I was, I was quiet for a few years before I started to verbalize and express myself. And then I discovered that I mean, I'm not quite homogenous with the rest of the population and what they like. I was always the odd one out. And then I realized, oh, I'm gay. So there was a lot of questioning around identity and who I am from a young age and trying to find my tribe and where I fit in with that. And I really struggled because I didn't feel that I fit into any one particular subsection of culture. I didn't feel completely resonant with all the Asian kids that hung out with only Asian people in Chinatown. I didn't feel, you know, the same for other subcultures, right? There were there were the Latinos, there were African-American groups, there were, you know, the drama kids, there, were the de there was the debate team, right? So everyone forms clicks, right? And I started to see yeah. this. And I think I found what seemed to be my tribe in theater. And that's, it was all the odd kids that wanted to express themselves, the people who were emotionally heard and needed to be seen and heard. And that's, that's where I ended up. And, and I think that my story of acceptance really started with my yoga journey, which happened when I was in acting conservatory, which was at a school called SUNY Purchase College in New York State. And it was there that 
we were trained in yoga and in somatic movement as part of the self-care routine to take care of yourself psychologically as an actor and also to discover how you as a person moves and breathes so that you can neutralize those habits that you have as a person when you're playing a character that may not have you know that certain gesture yeah. that you might have right yeah. but it was it was the spiritual aspects of yoga that i soon discovered that really grounded me centered me and and allowed me to accept the things i had repressed as a child you know because my my parents were physically mentally verbally emotionally very uh, they didn't they, i don't think it was intentional but it, it, i think it's, they were just a product of being hurt people that that's how it was raised. It was very emotionally and physically tough. And so I discovered a lot about accepting where I came from because I, I did not enjoy being an Asian kid growing up. I, I hated actually my culture growing up. There's a lot of self-loathing. I went to Chinese school on Sundays growing up. So I had to go to mm -hmm. school six days a week to learn yeah. how to read and write. And I had this whole other thing that other kids that just went to American school didn't have to go through. And so there was a lot of resentment towards my parents, the way they raised me, what I had to do in order to be an upstanding, good Chinese boy. You know, there's certain values that they tried to instill in me, Confucian principles, like filial piety, which is basically, you know, a fancy word for saying respect your elders, even if they don't deserve it, you need to, res there's, a, there's a hierarchy, yeah. um, which didn't always sit well with me. I didn't feel like, you know, respect was something to be, it was automatic. It had to be earned, even if there was an age gap. So that was something I questioned a lot. And and through discovering yoga and then after that meditation and then going into Reiki work uh, as, a, as a Reiki practitioner and then a Reiki master and then into shamanic work, I started diving into the energy of how things work. And I soon discovered that it's all a big farce. It's all a story. Yeah. The trauma that I had as a child, the, the quote-unquote trauma I had, yes, it did happen to me. Yes, it was serious. Yes, I got angry. Yes, I was sad. And yes, it hurt a lot. But also at the same time, it was a choice to hold that story in my body, in my mind, in my spirit, and to allow that story to inform my, my life experience. That was also a choice. And when I started to realize that, oh, wow, okay, this is... I mean, it's so metaphorical for me being an actor, playing characters on stage, and then to see and realize having a visceral energetic experience of, oh my goodness, me keeping onto my own personal shit is also very much the same. And so yeah. when I was started when I started the process of disentangling myself from the conditioning of where I came from, that was when I, you know, had the first taste of peace peace of mind, this emptiness where my, the chatter of negative self-talk and doubt and fear that, that, you know, that really dialed down and then emotionally feeling a little bit more centered and not so anxious and panicky all the time, which I, you know, I did feel that a lot growing up and even into acting conservatory and university, I was having anxiety attacks backstage because I felt that everyone was judging me all the time and <laughs> pairing, you know, pitting me up against other people. And so, yeah. I mean, I think my journey of acceptance and belonging really was in dabbling and looking for various entry points into discovering myself in new energetic and experiential ways that, that 
that really, yeah, I, I would say that's that's kind of how my journey started, and I I think it's still unfolding. I'm still discovering new nuances to what makes me tick, and I don't think it ever ends, right? So no, no, I just I don't think that ever ends for anybody. But having those extra layers of feeling like you're different to everyone else in the community must must be a difficult thing now i can't i can't even pretend that i know what that's like because um who i am so that's you know it's it's interesting to to try to get hold of that idea of who you are and from a different context well i think the universal themes of shame of fear and also of you know, the fear of not belonging, not fitting in, everyone can relate to that on some level. Yes, it may be difference so. in, in the circumstances. However, we, we all can experience that. And I think historically, queer rights and women's rights have been very much entangled together because women have also, you know, just by you being a woman, you, you know, you have the sense of fighting an uphill battle in relationship to the patriarchy and what's expected as a, you know, the roles of what a traditional woman should be doing. I mean, my mom still has this 1950s view of a woman should be bearing children, cooking, cleaning, because this is very much conditioned into her. Right. So, I mean, anyone who has an experience of breaking out of the norm of what's expected of them, it doesn't matter if they're not a minority of a minority, they can empathize in some way of the energy of moving out of shame. Yes. Because I felt shameful for being, you know, not Asian enough in the Asian communities and also being not white enough in the, you know, normal, you know, I want to say mm-hmm. normal, that's not the right word, but the homogenous hetero narrative that I was surrounded by growing up in the US. So, so because of that, it led me on a very specific quest on identity and what that means. And so I have to, in retrospect, be grateful for a lot of the, the angst and the hurt and the inner turmoil of trying to figure out, you know, what is that? And then when I went to Asia, I lived in Singapore for six years. I was, you know, I didn't quite fit in there because, you know, I spoke with this American accent and mm-hmm. people speak with a Singaporean accent. And so I was not Asian enough there and I didn't quite fit in, though it looks like I could have been born from there. And so, I mean, I everywhere I go, people question me. You know, I lived in India as well. And, you know, in India, you know, people go, where are you from? And this was before Obama was president. And I think that the concept of an American was always... It was always Caucasian, right? Yes. But when when people asked you, where are you from? I would say, you know, I'm from New York. I'm American. People would always second guess that, you know? And whereas someone who is, you know, of European descent in America, no one would question that. It was ne- it was a give. It's like, okay, great. You said you're American. I trust you. Whereas I had always, even in America, I, I've had that question to me because I I traveled and did theater in different places, especially when I was in Alabama in the deep South, you mm-hmm. know, people were like, where are you from? Wow. Your, your English is so good. Um, <laughs> it was like, yeah, I was born in this country and I used to get really angry and defensive about it. And then over time, it's just become comical to me because 
I, I started to step back and go, okay, this is that person's experience. Their experience may be a little bit more narrow in terms of their life, uh, where they've traveled, what they, who, the types of people they're encountering in their life. And so I don't take it as personal anymore. I, I for sure will offer a counter perspective like, oh, I might do a little education. Like, you know, there are many, you know, people of different nationalities and ethnicities that live in the US. It's not just Caucasian Americans, right? So so a lot of it was about changing this this perspective of being angry and defensive when when it was really people had a different life experience and trying to understand that they're trying to connect to me. They just might be asking questions they're not as informed. <laughs> so um, this is something I've always had to deal with. And now it's just you know, when people ask me where I'm from, it's, it's, you know, I, I have to, before I even open my mouth and answer, I need to step back and go, where are they coming from energetically? Are they, are they coming at me with this question in a way of trying to put me into a box because that's how they see the world? Or are they trying to connect with me? And then that will determine how I answer, because if they're trying to narrow me into a box and it's combative, right, I will... I will come back with uh, not in, in the energy to fight, but in the spirit of informing and of educating, I might answer it a certain way, right? Um, or if someone is, 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 it's unintentional, like sometimes there's unintentional racism, people say things, they don't mean it, but yeah. the energy is more, I want to connect to you. I will, you know, I will soften and respond accordingly. So it's gone a little bit more nuanced over time in, in how I deal with my identity. And then, of course, if you look at the queer community, there's a lot of compartmentalization happening within that as well with with all the labels. And, and there's also, you know, there's race, racial issues that are present in the queer community just as much as the macrocosm of the hetero yeah world at large and and that's interesting to look at as well so it's 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 what is most important to me is how anchored am i in each and every moment to who i am without all these labels so that mm -hmm. i can stay present to whoever it is that's talking to me and responding versus reacting and i i used to be very reactive so that it's very important for me to take pause assess yeah. the situation and then flow with that yeah i i get that because i've i've heard people i've known people who refer to people if according to where they're from and what their background is and it just goes well why are you doing that why you, why you have to label somebody like that but then i've seen other people who have who just have that genuine curiosity about people. So I love to find out what their background is and, and what their experiences are. So, you know, so I guess that's, that's something that you, that's that where you've got to second guess that you've got to guess, go, well, are you wanting to, yeah, it's, do you want to label me or do you want to know me? Well, yes, for sure. And I think, you know, even I am, guilty of doing that because we've all been educated that way. We have mm -hmm. been taught that even, you know, if you think back to primary school, we learn, how are you? 
where are you from? If you think about learning a second language, those are the first few questions you learn. You know, like we had to learn uh, Spanish as a second language in, in America. And, and it was always like, you know, how are you? Como esta? De donde eres? Where are you from? Right. So w- these are because we're taught that as a way to enter into small talk. It, those questions for sure have a way of connecting to to people by place, location, and also of culture. Okay, so when if you try and connect to someone by place and location, and if they, it, it, it doesn't mean that just because someone is from a certain place and you go, oh yeah, I, I've 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 been to Argentina, like that. That's not an instant point of connection, right? There's other ways to connect to people. We just were never taught that. Yeah. Right. And people would say that to me all the time. And I always find it so comical because they'll go, okay, where are you from? And I'll say, oh, I'm from New York. And they go, okay, what's your nationality? My nationality is American because the nation I'm from is is America. You mean my ethnicity. You want to know where ethnically I'm from. Right. So those are two different subtle words that people use interchangeably if they're not conscious. And then then what's curious to me is why that's the third question asked. Because if I were white, that would not be asked. People don't ask white Americans as a third question, where are you ethnically from? Are you of Slovakian, of Russian descent, of Eastern European? Are you Germanic? Like, where where are you from? Right. So this is something that people, uh, even um, African-Americans don't get asked that because of, because slavery has been yes. part of the American um you know, it, for the last few hundred yeah. years history, it's, it's been, it's been pretty much right. But whereas people of newer immigrant um, uh, subcultures, it, it's confusing for people because they don't necessarily know how to categorize you. So they want to, they want to say, oh, they want to go by what they see. Yeah. And, and that's really tricky for uh, an Asian American identity, even for South Asians and people of other visibly different ethnic minorities, because if you were to go to your home countries, like go to uh, if where you're from, like China or to Hong Kong, right? I don't quite fit in there because I don't speak the same. I, I do speak Chinese, but I speak it differently. You know, yes. the way I accent words, the way I choose my words, my mannerisms are different. Mm-hmm. The, the way that I carry myself is different. Mm-hmm. And what I find important, my values are different because I was brought up in the West. So there's an interesting evolution of what identity means for minority people and the diaspora of people around the world from immigrant and refugee communities that is very uh it's very important for people who are not of those communities to stay very present and aware that by asking and trying even though their their desire is to really connect to them that find other ways to connect before you get into that because we as a minority have always felt you know as soon as we walk into a room, we know we're different. By by age five, six, we know that when we walk into a room, we're not the same as everyone else and that people see us differently. So they expect other other things from us. Whereas that that's not that's not the case with someone who doesn't question that. Right. If you were to, you know, I, I don't like comparing things, but you know, in a heteronormative, you know, white society, but you know, in, in America especially, you know, little little you know, Caucasian boys and girls don't necessarily have to experience that, right? No one will question where they're from. So, 
If you're constantly in question where you're from, you lose trust in where you're from. <laughs> and you're, you're made to feel as if you don't belong in where you're from. And that is, I don't think that's what people mean to do, but they do it un, unintentionally. Yeah. So. What would be an experience that you've had where you've found a lot of, that you've found acceptance and belonging? Well, I think one of the first places I found acceptance was in theater. Mm -hmm. I thought that, you know, one of my first impressions of theater was, wow, okay, we get to just express ourselves. Because it was about the emotionality of what was being presented in the story versus, yeah, you know, in some of the other clubs in school with sports, especially, it was based off of performance, right? And it was all hierarchical because you're you're really great as a, I don't really know sports so well, but but like in basketball, like you're really good at shooting the ball in the hoop. So you get, we (laughs) celebrate or or like that never really resonated with me, but in theater, it was more like, wow, there's your personality is really suited for this type of character. So let's magnify that and bring that out on stage and you get to play this person, right? So it it felt like theater magnified these parts of myself that I would not voluntarily show to other people in a normal context. But because there was permission for other people to look at you while you're on stage to live life on stage as a reflection of how life really is, or whether it's, you know, a comedy and a farce or whatever, that it, it really enlivened this, this aspect for wanting to connect with other people more. And I think if it wasn't for that, I would be a very different person. And then it was also through dance. I did color guard in high school. And so we, I twirled flags around a football field and danced around. (laughs) (laughs) And, And I also did Kung Fu. And I think the movement aspect of of those modalities really allowed me to express my body in various ways. So what I could not say, I could move and and show and express that. And that felt really freeing. And so I think the combination of all of that is what led me to want to explore theater training. And of course, which was not, it was not my first choice because I, I didn't know that was even an option coming from uh, an Asian household, right? No, then, probably not. But then I was encouraged and I thought, oh, oh, wait a minute. This is an option. I cannot, there are acting conservatories. Wow. People actually want to study this and and not be a doctor or lawyer and uh, an accountant or whatever. And yeah. so then I decided to take a leap of faith and go against the grain of, of what I saw other Asian kids were doing, which really was living out what their parents wanted of them mm-hmm. to have yeah. security and stability, which if you look back at it and, and trying to understand from an immigrant perspective, if you're coming from a place of turmoil and, and political upheaval and danger, for sure, it makes sense why not just Asians, but people from other types of uh, uh, refugee situations, it, it makes sense why parents want that level of security for their kids. So then it became this journey of me rebelling against this this false notion of security and 
letting my parents know, okay, it's, it's going to be fine. Like I, this is actually what I want to do. And it took a while to, to convince them of that. Um, but, but it, it really was what I wanted to do. And then of course, when I thought that's what I wanted to do, it, it shifted again, the dream changed and it, and I evolved to do more of the healing work, which is what I do now. And, and this is the game that we're, we're all in this game of life is this constant morphing of one identity to the next, to the next, to the next. And we're never just one flat line because that would just be boring. It would be. <laughs> so what would you think that people can do to help break down barriers between that are held between different, say, cultures, religions, sexual orientation, whatever? What are some of the things that we can do There is so much that we can do, but the first thing that people need is a willingness to want to go there because if you, because I, for sure, was at a stage where I repressed everything. I didn't want to look at this other side of my life. I wanted to stay in the closet with my parents. I I would, I had this idea when I was in high school, I would graduate, move to a college campus that was far enough away that my parents couldn't come and, you know, hound me every day. And I was like, that was what was going to happen. And then live this secret private life where I could be gay and express myself, but not tell my parents because I knew that in the back of my head, they would not accept it. They might disown me. And I had this fear, this massive fear of rejection. Um, So I had to accept the possible pain of what that would be in telling them my truth. And I did, I came out and I wrote a letter to them. I dropped it in the mail, went off to India for three months to go deeper into discovering myself. And, <laughs> and, and I freaked out, you know, a week in after I dropped it off the mail, I was like, Oh my God, what did I do? I can't believe I dropped that letter there. And what would they think they're, they're, they're going to disown me. That was the first thing that came to mind. I called them from a phone card um, at the time, cause they didn't really understand how to use Skype. And you know, I had this conversation with them and it was the opposite response. They actually felt first disappointed, then sad. And then thirdly, they had this weird uh, desire to want to fix me because they thought I was psychologically ill. And also my mom thought that someone had molested me as a child, like their brains went totally somewhere else. Not what I expected. It went to a place of care from their limited narrow scope because they thought that this was a result of something versus me just being me. So <laughs> that was interesting. And and I think that that really changed me because I was prepared for just never talking to them again and being disowned. Whereas they, they actually, in fact, wanted to connect more, but in, in this very strange way. And so th- they still don't accept me fully. They still think I'm in a phase. I mean, it's been a decade, right? <laughs> they think that I'm going to settle down, get married and have like 10 children. And, and now it's just comical. In the beginning, it used to be funny. I mean, it's not funny, but really um, frustrating. I was really angry, but now it's just funny because I, I don't know how else to, you know, my mom would say the funniest thing she would, it wasn't funny at the time, but she would go, if they put a man on the moon, right? And scientists are constantly coming up with new solutions and new cures, they could probably cure you of this, you know, and if and if I think about it in the moment, it's like, oh, that's that's a crappy thing to say. But then when I think about it now, it's actually 
kind of funny the the way that she used those words in Chinese and the word choices that she used actually is quite comical. And so I, I can only take light of it because I'm not so serious with my identity now. And I don't, I, I, I just don't attach so much to it anymore. And if people, you know, say something ignorant, it's like, oh, okay, great. And you know, I register in my head like, oh, wow, that's ignorant. And then I step back and I empathize and I go, oh, okay. They're coming from this wounded place or this limited life experience and they don't know any better. And then I have to choose, do I want to engage in that and try and inform and educate? Or do I just kind of walk away and step back? And whatever I choose, I just have to make sure that I choose it clearly instead of just walking away with a, a feeling of of bitter resentment for, oh my God, how ignorant is that person? Well, if that's what how you feel, then then find a compassionate way to inform. But I don't feel that all the time. So I just disengage. And sometimes I feel that. So then I engage. And and it's this knowing of ourselves that really we all need to come to. And, and, you know, after knowing ourselves through various ways, right, there's shamanic techniques, there's meditation, there's yoga, there's Buddhism, there's, there's a lot of self-inquiry, self-discovery processes that people can engage in. And it really just depends on you, what, what speaks to you. And an inquiry is, I would say, from a, a Buddhist perspective, and I would say a, a non-secular Buddhist perspective, that is, if we can adopt that as a world society, that would be that would be great. It would be golden because uh, Buddhist inquiry. Because the Buddha wasn't a Buddhist. He he always encouraged people to doubt what he taught. He said, mm -hmm. "Hey, I'm just teaching you a path out of suffering, and it's philosophical." And then it's your job to take the philosophy and make it practical. So here are some practical things that you can do to not suffer so much. And a lot of it was revolving around this sense of I am identity. I am this. I am that. I'm a son. I'm a brother. I'm a gay person. I'm a hurt person. I'm a, I'm a smart person. I'm a people pleaser. Whatever it is, if we overattach to a label and we're not flexible with that label, fluid even, that's when we we become, you know, we, 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 we suffer. That's essentially what happens. That's all he was saying. And if, if we can adopt that perspective on and place that on religion, if you're a religious person or not, it doesn't matter. But if we can take that principle from Buddhism and just apply it into our everyday life, you could be atheist, agnostic, it doesn't matter. But if you just question everything, why am I doing what I'm doing? Why do I think the way I do? Why do I eat the way I eat? The choices of food I put into my mm -hmm. body. All of it has to come, you know, from autopilot into awareness. And that's all we need to do as people. In whatever way we do that and whatever techniques support us from whatever lineage, I just happen to have a dramatic flair for, you know, like colorful things. And I love shamanism. I love the ceremony. I love, you know, I love the incense. I love the smells. I love all of it. I love the storytelling. I, so for me, it speaks very much to the style of person that I am and my preferences to other people, you know, they might prefer Zen, which is more minimalist. Maybe you just stare at a wall until like you have a realization, which is very Zen, right? So, I mean, there's so many different pathways and I think that people just have to want to explore them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're running out of time. So before I go, I'd love to just know, be able to share, share your book and share with people where they can get hold of it because I am sure after speaking with you that it's full of lots of fascinating stories and will be an excellent read. 
Yes, thank you. Yeah, you can find the book on Amazon. Um, just search for Sage Sapien from Karma to Dharma. And there are also books available at IndieBound.com and Barnes and Noble for people mm-hmm. in North America. And actually, if you just Google it, it pops up on various independent yeah. bookstore sites. So you can order it there. There's paperback versions and there's also an ebook version for people that read on a Kindle. So that's where you can find my book. Awesome. And yeah, it would be great if people can can get it because that will help me, you know, stay up there on the charts. And it's kind of like those uh, artists are like the top 40 on the billboard. Like it feels <laughs> kind of like that. It's like, cool. Awesome. That's yeah. nice. Yeah. I never knew that it was that in in the book world until you become an author. And then it's everything. Everyone's like, oh, I've got to get on that top. <laughs> Right. And there's so many different categories, right? And it's yes. just, um, no, it's pretty cool. So it's nice to be seen and heard and appreciated. And, and yeah, so that's pretty cool. So thank you so much for your time today, Johnson. It's been a real pleasure to, to have a chocolate and coffee with you. Thank you so much, Andrea, for having me on. Thank you. And I'll be back next time with another story from around the world. Thank you for joining me today on Chocolate and Coffee Breaks. To download our resource pack for your own chocolate and coffee break experiences and join our community, head on over to www.chocolateandcoffeebreaks.com. Join us again next time as we explore more stories that will touch your heart and reveal that opposites are the same. Meanwhile, Share a chocolate, have a cuppa, enjoy a conversation and change the world.